Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. From fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. On June 19th, the day Larry Underwood came home to New York and the day that Franny Goldsmith told her father about her impending little stranger, Harry Trent stopped at an East Texas cafe called Babe's Quick Eat for lunch. He had the cheeseburger platter and a piece of Babe's delicious strawberry pie for dessert. He had a slight cold, an allergy cold maybe, and he kept sneezing and having to spit. In the course of the meal, he infected Babe, the dishwasher, two truckers in a corner booth, the man who came in to deliver bread, and the man who came in to change the records on the juke. He left the sweet thang that waited his table a dollar tip that was crawling with death. On his way out, a station wagon pulled in. There was a roof rack on top, and the wagon was piled high with kids and luggage. The wagon had New York plates, and the driver, who rolled down his window to ask Harry how to get to US-21 going north, had a New York accent. Harry gave the New York fellow very clear directions on how to get to Highway 21. He also served him and his entire family their death sentence without even knowing it. Hello, Books and Nachos listeners. I'm Arnie, your host for this episode, and I can't describe how excited I am today to be discussing Stephen King's seminal 1978 epic, The Stand. I also have trouble expressing how intimidated I am to think of discussing The Stand in a single podcast, so I'm not going to. This will be a conversation broken up over several podcasts, which I'm going to release one per day for the next few days. I mean, The Stand just deserves it. It was a mammoth book spanning 823 pages when it was first printed in 1977, and then it expanded to 1,152 pages for the 1990 uncut and expanded edition. That makes it King's longest novel to date, the uncut version besting second place holder It by 25 pages. It's not hyperbole when I call this an epic tale as King's story takes place across all of North America and has over 450 named characters and other referenced folks. And thanks to StephenKing.com for not making me count that by hand. After over 35 years in print, The Stand is still considered by many King fans to be his best book, much to the author's frustration and disappointment that nothing he's written since has measured up. Now, I'm not going to share Mother Abigail's sin of pride and think that I can, in one podcast, or even in one lifetime, deliver for you, constant listener, the ultimate analysis of The Stand. There are so many ways to look at this mammoth novel. For one, there's the cultural analysis, with it having been written during the 1970s, a decade plagued by disillusion in our government as seen by Watergate, yet still fierce patriotism as refracted by the prism of the Cold War. But the fierce self-centeredness that would be the hallmark of the 80s was springing forward as seen with the gas crisis, where most people were worried about filling their own tank and less concerned if their neighbor filled his. Another analysis is this book as part of King's entire body of work. As I will talk some, The Stand was King's biggest novel to date, and both culls from his previous work as well as influencing so much of everything he would write after. A third analysis of this book is as biblical allegory, for with The Stand, King steps away from the thought of good and evil as only the pagan black and white as he'd used in Salem's Lot. Here, King starts dealing with capital G God and many Christian themes. There's the literary deconstructionist view, the psychological view, the sociological view. There's a lot reflected in this book, but I'm here to give you my review with a large focus on the sheer entertainment value of this novel. But yes, 
The Stand is a huge book that actually warrants a great deal of analysis and discussion. And I hope that you, constant listener, are willing to join me in this lengthy though it may be. And I'll say right now that each act of this book warrants some discussion. So I'm going to go ahead and issue a spoiler warning now for anyone who's not read this book in the 35 plus years it's been available, but thinks you may someday still want to get to it. But despite being daunted at the prospect of trying to do this book justice, I'm also ecstatic to be able to share with you my thoughts on this, one of my all-time favorite works of fiction. Though, I'll admit, that wasn't always the case. In my preteen and teenage years, I had absolutely no interest in ever reading The Stand. If you've listened to my previous Books and Nachos podcast reviewing Stephen King's written fiction, or some of the shows over at Now Playing Podcast where we've reviewed the movies based on King's work, then you probably know I started reading King when I was about 11. In sixth grade, I was interested in horror, and Stuart, my childhood friend and now my co-host at Now Playing, was reading King. He turned me on to Carrie, and I was drawn in. I continued reading King's work, like Christine, Cujo, Skeleton Crew, and more. I'd keep up with King's current books at the time, reading It, Eyes of the Dragon, Misery, and others, but also go back and catch up on his older stories. Yet, I never read The Stand, even in my high school years, when it seemed all my fellow students were carrying that novel everywhere. I mentioned in previous podcasts, when I was in junior high, I noticed tons of kids carrying Skeleton Crew, that black cover with the monkey appeared in more book bags than the assigned homework. But by my freshman and sophomore year of high school, that short story collection had been replaced and at least a dozen students I knew well, and many more in my classes, were reading The Stand. And it wasn't a new book at that time, we're talking 1988 and 1989. Much as Lord of the Rings had been a common piece of fiction read by my peers in 5th and 6th grade, by ninth and 10th grade, they were pulling the stand out, this 1970s piece of fiction. And they'd extol upon me how it was King's best book, and knowing I was a King fan, they said I just had to read it. But I didn't. All through junior high, all through high school, I never touched the stand. Now, part of it was the cover art. If you've seen that classic cover, it shows a desert scene featuring only two strange beings. One is almost all white, wearing white clothes and dreadlocks. The other is all black and seems to be some kind of human bird creature with a pronounced beak. Think kind of like Alec Baldwin's scary pointy face from Beetlejuice. The two creatures are engaged in combat. The white man swinging what appears to be some kind of sword, the black creature holding a large scythe above his head. And to teenage me, I had no idea what I was looking at, but I didn't have any interest. It looked like a fantasy novel. I wanted horror. I was reading King for scares and death, not two fantastical creatures engaged in melee combat. I was a reader of Fangoria, a lover of Freddy and Jason. What were these creatures going to offer me? More, to me, the evil found in King novels I enjoyed was easily summed up. Ghosts in a hotel, telekinetic girl, vampires. When people tried to tell me about The Stand, I had no idea what they were saying. This book is not done justice by a high concept summary. Plus, there was no movie, no trailer to excite me or sum up the plot. And as I'll discuss, there's no real way the story can be succinctly captured in a book cover. It's ironic for two reasons that the cover turned me off as it did. First, turns out the cover is not a representation of the titular stand. And at no point in the novel does a beaked creature appear, let alone grab a scythe to combat a dreadlocked man with a sword. No, in an interview King gave in the 80s, he said this cover was based upon a Goya painting. He didn't say which, but it's likely fight with cudgels, which shows two men fighting with swords in a field. 
but this cover artist made the art truly symbolize the story in the stand of good versus evil. Not only is one character black and one white, but if you look at the poses of the two characters, the black one's kicking his leg forward and the white one has his arms out. And if you squint, you can almost see the classic Chinese symbol for yin and yang, only comprised of two battling people instead of two swirls. But even more ironic, this cover was aimed right at me, a Star Wars fan. I didn't see that in the 80s, but looking at this old cover today, it seems obvious to me that the artist was trying to use Star Wars iconography to make this book appeal to fans of George Lucas's space fantasy. It makes perfect sense. The stand came out in late 1978, about 18 months after Star Wars became the highest grossing film of all time. Everyone was trying to capitalize on that film's success. Science fiction films long shelved were rushed into production, and this cover built off Star Wars as well. I see it now. The white figure is dressed in robes that could have been taken right off Luke Skywalker or any other Denzian of Luke's homeworld of Tatooine, and he's in a desert, again, much like Luke Skywalker's home. The white man was swinging a sword, or maybe it's a saber. While not made of light, you put that weapon in the hands of someone wearing these clothes, and that's what's brought to mind. More the enemy, while being a beaked creature that reminds me more of Mad Magazine's Spy vs. Spy, is dressed in all black, much like Darth Vader. Sure, this black man on the cover has a curved blade versus another sword, but I guess there's only so much you can copy before Lucasfilm decides to sue. But being a more literal-minded adolescent, I didn't see that back then. Unless the black man had been wearing a breathing mask and holding a red light sword, I don't think I would have gotten an implied connection. Even if I had, this book wouldn't have delivered the science fiction space adventure I'd have longed for. Yes, both Kings the Stand and Lucas's Star Wars tell stories of good people fighting against absolute evil, and both stories have wonderful world crafting. But Lucas was content to rely on what he would later identify as classic Campbellian archetypes to tell his story. While King, writing for the page and not the screen, goes so much deeper in his creation of characters black, white, and gray. No, this book is not Star Wars, despite how whoever designed this cover wished it were. Looking back, I'm actually glad I ignored all my friends who extolled the virtues of this novel. I'm glad I didn't read this book, because in the late 80s, I wanted King to scare me, and this high fantasy would have bored me. I'll tell you, around the same time I tried reading The Gunslinger, I never got past Chapter 5 because there wasn't enough blood and scares. Had I read The Stand back then, hoping for horror and getting epic fantasy, I'd have been let down, and that may have forever tainted my view of this book. Even in my mid-teens, when I joined the Stephen King Book Club, the one that sent me the new King book every month, The Stand was the second book they sent me, having just been reprinted in its new 1990 Complete and Uncut edition. Yet, even though I owned The Stand, I went and read the other books sent, such as Pet Cemetery, The Dead Zone, and Christine. Even Four Past Midnight got my attention over The Stand. I finally read The Stand when I was 19 years old and ready to enjoy what it was giving instead of wanting it to be another Christine or Pet Cemetery. But what got me to read it after all those years? It was the ABC miniseries airing in the spring of 1994. And to be honest, I wasn't too excited for that miniseries when it was announced. I thought ABC had a mediocre track record with series based on King's novels. The one they'd done based on it didn't come close to the book, and Tommy Knockers was pretty cheesy. 
Then the cast for The Stand was either people I didn't know, like Gary Sinise and Jamie Sheridan, or common television mainstays like Corin Nemec and Ray Walston, or very minor character actors that I'd enjoyed from other works like Miguel Ferrer and Patrick Kilpatrick, and worst of all, washed up members of the Brat Pack like Molly Ringwald and Rob Lowe. But I have to give it to ABC's advertising department, the promotions had me in front of my television on May 8th, 1994. I hadn't read The Stand, but I really wanted to see what it was all about. Now that miniseries aired over four nights. It started on Sunday, then went into Monday. Then it skipped Tuesday, because nobody moves number one TV show Roseanne off the schedule during sweeps. Then The Stand got to come back for Wednesday and Thursday. Well, that was finals week, my sophomore year of college. But on that Tuesday, that one skipped night was too much to bear. I had gotten so into this miniseries, I needed to keep it going. So I decided to skip studying for finals. And honestly, any excuse not to study was a good excuse when I was an undergrad. Finally, after owning this novel for four years, I pulled my copy of the complete and uncut The Stand from my bookshelves. It was a gorgeous spring day, and though I'd never been there before, I went to the boat docks in Decatur, Illinois with a picnic lunch and sat in the sun all day reading The Stand. I had that novel finished in just a couple days, and I passed my finals anyway. Now I'll talk more about that miniseries later, but yes, it was the television adaptation that gave me my first insight into The Stand, my first real understanding of its concept and plot, but it's the novel that made me the fan I am. So what is The Stand? If it can't be described as simply as girl who starts fires, possessed car, or rabid dog, what is the basic concept? It's a story about survivors and the evil that men do. In brief, and I'll break this down more later, in secret, the U.S. government had been researching biological warfare, specifically a deadly strain of the flu. A breach at a military installation allows this flu to get out. Initially, the public believes it to be the common flu, but soon it becomes known colloquially as Captain Trips, and it kills almost everyone with whom it comes into contact. Less than 1% of the population survives, and from those come our main characters. With most people dead, the stage is set for a showdown between good and evil. The good people gather in Boulder, Colorado, and try to reestablish a society with the government and laws. But the greedy and the cruel are drawn to the West, to Las Vegas, Los Angeles, and other areas ruled by a demonic entity who is currently going by the name Randall Flagg. The Dark Man has supernatural abilities. He can shapeshift, he can fly, and he can astrally project to see things far away. Flagg's primary camp is set up in Vegas, and in Sin City, he plots to kill all those who resist his rule, starting with the community established in Colorado. It was King's most ambitious tale to date. In Carrie, King had focused on a very small group of characters before ending with the near-total destruction of Chamberlain, Maine. His next novel, Salem's Lot, was much larger and really grew the cast of characters to let the reader get a feeling for that small Maine town before King killed almost everyone who lived in the lot. For The Shining, King scaled back the scope. He only destroyed a resort hotel that time, but he also allowed us to watch a family be torn apart by supernatural forces. But for this fourth story, King was going to destroy not just a hotel, not just a small town. King was going to wipe out the entire planet. And not with monsters or demons, not with fire or flood, but with the flu. But note something important. This isn't a horror novel. This is an epic science fiction fantasy. Due to the inclusion of a demonic entity in King's previous works, especially the ghost story The Shining and the vampire tale Salem's Lot, The Stand has been lumped in as horror fiction. Back when there were local bookstores with horror sections, 
That's where you'd find this, along with every other King book. But while there are scenes that are horrific, this isn't a horror novel in the classical sense of the term. No, for the first time since Carrie, King was publishing suspense fiction rather than pure horror, not counting the Bachman books, which were mostly written pre-Carrie and are also far removed from that scary genre. This is a story that begins as man versus nature, that nature being a man-made flu virus, and then survival in a society where most people are dead. There are no laws, no hospitals, no government, and a single scraped leg can lead to infection and death. But eventually the story changes to man versus man, the good people of Boulder versus the bad people under Flag's command. In that way, this is really two stories, one of the downfall of society and one of a battle against evil. The two tales just follow the same groups of characters. Now, I mentioned I read the uncut version initially. I reread the uncut version just for fun in the 2000s. But for this review, I read this book in all three versions. Yeah, three. There was the initial 1978 hardcover version published by Doubleday. It was the fifth and last book in King's original contract with that publisher. When delivered, King's manuscript was over 1,200 pages, and Doubleday was afraid the cost of printing such an enormous book would drive the price higher than the usual $12.95 the publisher felt people would be willing to pay. Yeah, think about that for book inflation. The most they'd sell a hardcover for is $12.95. And because of that, they gave King an edict. 400 pages had to be removed from the book, and they could either have their in-house editor do it, or King could do it himself. King was frustrated. As he writes in the author's note at the start of the complete and uncut edition, he would have been fine with the cuts if they'd been made for artistic reasons, if it was for pacing, or if it was simply bad writing. But he felt these cuts were mandated by the accounting department. But the author was under contract, so he agreed. He tried to work around it. He asked for permission to publish a complete version as a limited collector's edition with a specialty press, but Doubleday refused due to the contracts they had with book clubs. Left with no other choice, King made the cuts himself, but that mandate left the author angry and frustrated. This 1978 original printing has been out of print for decades, and I feared finding a copy for this review would be costly. But the book is common, there are a lot of copies were printed, and I ended up with the book club edition of the hardcover for only $6 through eBay, money well spent to be able to review this novel in the form it was originally released. In 1980, the paperback of the book was published by the New American Library, the company to whom Doubleday had sold all of King's paperbacks. But for this paperback version, King made some changes. The most notable difference between the two versions is the time period. The original 1978 publication set this story in the then near future of 1980, putting it close enough to be familiar, but yet far enough in the future to be looming as a possible eventuality to the reader. As the paperback was first printed in 1980, King made his most significant change, moving the time frame forward to 1985, keeping things again just in the near future. This actually caused some problems, as some days were changed and updated, but others weren't. So main characters stayed about the same age, but their cars, some minor characters, and several other dates mentioned were all five years earlier. It was this paperback version I actually read first, and the dates stood out to me as really odd. Stu was complaining of gas shortages, which were key in the late 70s, but mostly forgotten by 1985. And the cars seemed to all be quite old, as did the songs referenced. This was how I realized the dates had been changed. The other major change between the hardcover and paperback version is kind of comical. 
In the original version of the book, King had a character named Harold Lauder who ate a copious amount of payday bars. The problem was, King was unfamiliar with payday and he just assumed being a candy bar, they were covered in chocolate. And later in the book, Harold makes a key mistake of leaving a chocolate fingerprint behind. This led readers to repeatedly tell King at signings and write letters telling him, paydays don't have chocolate. So in that 1980s version, every reference to a payday has been changed, and now Harold likes the very chocolatey Milky Way bar. Other than those two rather superficial changes, the paperback is virtually identical to the original hardcover version. But then came the big change. Ten years later in 1990, King's complete and uncut edition was published, containing hundreds of additional pages, as well as, in some versions, several full-page black-and-white illustrations. The shorter versions of this novel were taken out of print, and as such, this uncut is now the most common version of the book. If you want to read The Stand on your Nook or your Kindle, or just want to go to a local bookstore to buy this in paperback, it's the uncut version you'll find. The Stand's 1990 re-release was as big an event as any new King novel. To help ease customer confusion, an 800 number was set up at Doubleday where people could call to find out what the differences were with his new version. The first printing was 400,000 copies, far greater than the original printing in 1978, and then there was also a leather-bound signed collector's edition. The novel became the first hardcover reprint to land on the New York Times bestseller list. However, this 1990 edition was not simply King's original 1,200-page manuscript restored to its original state. That was my mistake and assumption going in. For this review, I read the 1980 paperback first, the unabridged 1990 version next, and then ended with the original 1978 hardcover, reading the uncut version in the middle so I could really get a handle on the differences. I read all three versions first because I was genuinely curious if the reading experience would be that different, and second, so I could provide you, constant listener, a guide to the differences. I searched and searched online, and I couldn't find a complete list of the changes, so I decided I'd make one. I began a spreadsheet, and as I read the original 1978 printing, the one I read last, I began to document every change. And that's when I realized why there was no list of the complete changes. There's simply too many. No, King didn't just reinstate his original pages. He gave the entire novel a rewrite. Some of the changes made are really head-scratching as to why King felt the changes were necessary. For example, in the first version, the author's dedication read, quote, For my wife Tabitha, this dark chest of wonders. But in the 1990 edition, that changed to, quote, For Tabby, this dark chest of wonders. Or later, one character is dismayed by the possibility of the virus, and in the 1978-1980 editions, the line was, quote, Jesus. Hap said, frightened, end quote. But in 1990, it changed to, quote, Moses in the bulrushes, Hap said, frightened. From corrections of grammar and some, but not all, typographical errors to simply changing some of the wording, King rewrote it all. The majority of these tweaks are found in the first third of the book, where nearly every page had something changed. This lessened in the latter two-thirds, but there were still plenty of little tweaks. King said that part of the reason for the rewrite was to acknowledge the AIDS epidemic. When The Stand was first released in 1978, AIDS wasn't a social issue. It was first discovered in the U.S. in 1981. But through the 80s, King realized how much his novel predicted some of what occurred with AIDS, and he wanted to include those references. Still, 
I can say the differences between the 1978 and the 1990 version are too many to count, and yet the sum of most of the differences is very little. The changes that matter can be boiled down to about two categories. First, King again updated the timeline, now setting his story in 1990, perhaps so the novel didn't feel so dated. Unlike the 1980 paperback, this time virtually every date in the entire novel has been pushed forward 10 years, avoiding the older cars and jobs. He even updated some of the cultural references to reflect this new time period. In one key example, there's a scene late in the book where one bored character is passing the time with a comic book. In the 1978 version, King wrote, quote, He sighed and took another comic book off the stack. Some ridiculous fucking thing called Howard Duck, who was supposed to be a master of quack-foo. He threw it across the store and it fluttered down in a tent shape on top of a cash register. It was things like Howard Duck, he thought, that made you believe the world was maybe just as well off destroyed. End quote. In 1990, it changed to, quote, He sighed and took another comic book off the stack. Some ridiculous fucking thing called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The Ninja Turtles were supposed to be heroes on a half shell. He threw Raphael, Donatello, and their numbfuck buddies across the store, and the comic book they inhabited fluttered down in a tent shape on top of a cash register. It was things like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, he thought, that made you believe the world was maybe just as well off destroyed. End quote. Some of the changes are a little bit too self-referential for my taste. In the 1990 version, one character, referencing Captain Trips, says, quote, Flu made who? End quote a reference to an ACDC song written for King's directorial debut, Maximum Overdrive. But most of the changes are innocuous. That said, references to gas crises and recessions were even more dated in 1990, and they stayed in the book. And the characters used to reference and listen to the rock of their time, but by 1990, the songs of the 70s had been relegated to the classic rock stations. Now, the second major category of change is that the uncut version is much longer. King did put back many passages that were cut, 10 full chapters, a prologue and an epilogue, as well as other sections throughout. In the author's foreword, he states that the book is the same as before, and he didn't put back every page that was cut originally, but much of the cut material has indeed been reinstated. The extra chapters are all in the first third of the book, quite a bit of padding in the second third, and the final third is virtually identical from the original and final versions. Now, I do believe there was one other change in this 1990 edition that was King thumbing it nose at a small section of his readers. That Payday candy bar he was forced to turn into a Milky Way? Well, by 1990, Payday had released a chocolate-covered Payday candy bar, and sure enough, King turned every reference back to Payday, chocolate fingerprints and all. I give you all this information as I know I had questions about the differences in the versions coming into this review. And I think you may share that curiosity. Now, while I did give up on my spreadsheet, the minor changes just too numerous to count, I will mention a few other key changes as we go through. But I'm giving you all this information here at the start so that it's clear I'm not reviewing any one version of the stand. All told, they're not that different. At the end of this review, I'll give my verdict on which version is the best. But I figure going in, there may be questions about which version I'm discussing for the bulk of this review. And the answer is, all of them. Now, while this book came out originally in 1978, King started writing The Stand in February of 1975. He intended it to be complete in time for it to be published right after The Shining. But The Stand took longer to write than he expected. 
He appeased his publisher Doubleday with the short story collection Night Shift, so they'd have something by Stephen King to sell in early 1978, and The Stand was finally released in September of that year. Since its publication over 35 years ago, King has talked many times about his origins writing The Stand. Now, some of the statements over the years are contradictory, but there are some consistent threads. By 1975, King was an established author. Thanks to the paperback sale of Carrie and Salem's Lot, then the subsequent movie rights, King was able to be a full-time writer, quite a change from teaching and also working at a laundromat just to cover the bills a few short years earlier. Following the death of his mother, King had moved his family to Boulder, Colorado, a move made partially to give his novels a different backdrop. He recounted that he randomly opened a atlas, pointed to a place, and that it was Boulder. A fortuitous move for, as I described in my review of The Shining, it was a weekend road trip in Colorado that inspired that amazing piece of fiction. But it was while writing that story about the haunted hotel that King started to think about what his next novel would be. King's an author who writes one story during the morning hours and then rewrites and edits a completed manuscript in the afternoon. And once his first draft of The Shining was complete, he set to editing it in the afternoon hours, and during the morning, he worked on a new book. Not The Stand, but one entitled The House on Value Street. In his non-fiction book, Dance Macabre, King wrote about the origins of The Stand, and stated that in 1974 and 75, he was fascinated by the then-current news about the kidnapping of Patty Hearst and her brainwashing by the Symbionese Liberation Army. He knew that was a story upon which many non-fiction books would be written, but given the mental state of Hearst herself and the conflicting statements, he thought only a fictionalized novel might really, to quote King, quote, find the truth that lives at the center of the lie, end quote. King spent about six weeks researching Hearst, and his imagination was really sparked by SLA leader Donald DeFries. King had long been fascinated by, and frightened of, real-life killers such as Charlie Starkweather, Charles Manson, Texas Tower killer Charles Whitman, and DeFries fit that type as well. King was also enraptured with the photos of the killer, including ones like you can see today on DeFries' Wikipedia page. An FBI photo where the man is robbing a bank while wearing a large hat that partially obscures his face. Brainstorming, King wrote down, quote, Donald DeFries is a dark man, end quote. Then added, quote, a dark man with no face, end quote. That sparked something in the author, something that harkened back to a poem he wrote in 1969 called The Dark Man, which I reviewed in my last episode of Books and Nachos. King wouldn't equate the two, at least publicly, for many years, but by viewing Donald DeFries as the dark man with no face, King had a nemesis for his story. As for the plot, however, that came from a far different place in King's mind. While living in Boulder, King would listen to Bible-thumping radio stations. Now, King was raised Methodist, and he stated repeatedly that he does believe in God, but he's agnostic and no fan of the church. He once said, quote, I have no interest in preaching or in organized religion, and no patience with zealots who claim to have the one true pipeline to the big guy, end quote. Yet, perhaps like a Democrat fixated by Fox News, King would listen to the station, and it likely served as some of his inspiration for the cult in Children of the Corn and it certainly served as inspiration for The Stand. For one day, the radio preacher proclaimed, quote, Once in every generation, the plague will fall among them. End quote. That sure sounds like a biblical phrase, though I can't find any verse that comes close to this proclamation, but King loved it. 
He wrote it down on a card and kept it by his typewriter for inspiration. And writing about the end of civilization isn't a new idea for King. His first attempt at a novel, a never-finished book called The Aftermath, was set in a post-apocalyptic world destroyed by nuclear war. More, as those of you who have been following me on this Books and Nachos series know, King had already written about a flu-like plague wiping out most of civilization. It was in the short story Night Surf, first published while King was in college in 1969, and then revised and reprinted in August 1974 in Cavalier Magazine, and then finally collected in King's Night Shift compilation. In regards to that short story and its relation to The Stand, King would later say, quote, With Night Surf, I knew the book was there. I just wasn't ready to write it. I was about 19 when I wrote that story, end quote. But even as he grew older, King was frustrated with society. He wrote in Dance Macabre about the quick, head-spinning change in his life from poverty to being considered rich. He described it as, quote, career jet lag, unquote. But while he was doing well, he felt America was crumbling. Now, that's an attitude King's held since the Russians beat Americans into space in 1961 when King was a kid. But it's a feeling that grew in the author as he watched the Watergate scandal erupt and America's loss in Vietnam. From the oil crisis to the Kennedy assassination, King thought America was on a downward spiral. King saw something appealing in the thought of wiping the slate clean, what society would be like if the reset button was pushed. No people mean no oil shortages, no inflation. He wrote in Dance Macabre, quote, In this frame of mind, the destruction of the world as we know it became an actual relief. No more Ronald McDonald. No more gong show or soap on TV. Just soothing snow. No more terrorists. No more bullshit. End quote. I can see that as appealing in a nihilistic, Tyler Durden, Fight Club kind of way. And let's not forget, King is the same author who wrote Rage, a book where a frustrated student takes a gun to class to demolish high school cliques. The same author who wrote Carrie, where a girl who is picked on stands up and kills not only her tormentors, but most of the people in her town. Nihilism was certainly in King's wheelhouse in the 1970s. The concept of a plague wiping out civilization was really driven home to King in 1968. Then, still a college student, King read about the Dugway Sheep Incident, where the U.S. Army was testing chemical and biological warfare programs in Utah. As King described it, it was, quote, like Agent Orange, but more deadly, end quote. The chemical agent was carried by wind towards a stable, infecting and killing over 6,000 sheep. But King mused, quote, had the wind been different, it could have blown over Salt Lake City. End quote. And this reminded King of the 1949 George R. Stewart novel Earth Abides, where a plague wipes out most of mankind, save for one man made immune by a snake bite he suffered earlier in life. It was the sheep incident that really prompted him the next year to publish Night Surf originally. But now in the mid-1970s, these two distinct ideas, the plague falling among them and the SLA dark man, they swirled in King's head and he started to envision the novel that would become The Stand. More, this gave King an opportunity he'd been looking for to try and stretch his writing ability. Now, he stayed quiet about this in the 70s when The Stand was originally released. He was afraid of being mocked by critics. But by the mid-80s, King was more than willing to discuss some of his true intent behind The Stand. In one interview where he first talked about this, he said, quote, I never said this to anybody because it sounds so goddamn pretentious, but I wanted to do Lord of the Rings with an American background. It didn't come out that way, but I thought it would be fun to do an epic fantasy with an American backdrop. So many fantasies take place in some make-believe land. You have to learn a new language to even read the book. End quote. 
King was a longtime fan of Tolkien's works, and he finally felt ready to tackle a novel similar in scope and grandeur to Lord of the Rings. Indeed, many parallels can be made between the two series, and in the extended and uncut version of The Stand, King even makes overt references to Tolkien's epic trilogy. Perhaps King cut those again fearing unfavorable comparisons between his novel and Tolkien's classics. Yet, I can't stress the importance of King's phrase, epic fantasy with an American backdrop. Despite me having read King's work for more than half my life, it was this reading of The Stand that drove home to me that King's writings are pieces of Americana. I've always viewed the author as global. Rabid dogs and ghosts care not for the borders of nations. But no, King's characters are cut from American denim. They listen to American rock and roll. Most drive Fords or Chevys. They face American cultural issues and class struggles. King heroes are often the blue-collar man, who King believes to be mostly good. Yes, King is as much Americana as the drive-in theater, the jukebox, and Route 66. And never is that more noticeable or more important than in The Stand. Even the title of the book, it comes from Bruce Springsteen, the boss of blue-collar rock. King took the words The Stand from Springsteen's song Jungle Land. King said that as he started writing, he didn't even know what The Stand would be only that eventually the good guys would need to make a stand against the evil forces, so he set about writing. And the first thing you read in the book are some rock lyrics from American rockers. Ever since Carrie, King has interwoven lyrics with his literature, but the stand starts with three blocks of lyrics, the first being Springsteen's Jungle Land. The second, and my favorite in the context of this book, is Blue Oyster Cult's Don't Fear the Reaper, a classic rock song about accepting inevitable death. The third was Bob Dylan's Shelter from the Storm, though King changed it in the uncut version to The Fish Cheer by Country Joe and the Fish. With those lyrics setting the mood and creating an unofficial soundtrack to the book, King begins. Like Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, King took the stand and broke it into three books, though all are published in one mammoth novel. In the first two printings, these books had individual titles, but those were removed for the 1990 edition. The first book was called Captain Trips. And no, it has nothing to do with Jerry Garcia, though that was the Grateful Dead frontman's nickname due to the amount of acid he did. King had actually used the term first with the short story Night Surf. In addition to separating the story into books, King gives dates for each book in the novel. And Captain Trips takes place in under one month, from June 16th to July 4th, of whatever year the book's printing chose. In that span of just two and a half weeks, we're going to witness the fall of America. It's a fall from grace caused by the American government and spread by the American people. When the novel begins, the country is going as it always has been. King uses this to ease the reader into his fantasy novel. There's no mystical realms of which to learn, no arduous maps, no language guides, no foreign lands. King stated in an interview that he intends all his novels to create a world the reader can identify with. That's part of the reason he uses brand names the way he does so that the reader can identify with the novel as happening in the world in which we live. For The Stand, we're in California and Texas, in our world. It's comfortable, it's familiar, and in this way, King has tricked millions of readers who would never touch a Swords and Sandals book into reading a high fantasy novel. And with that background on The Stand comes to conclusion my first part of my Stand review. As King has broken this book into multiple parts with a prologue and epilogue and three separate books in the middle, I'm going to do the same with my review. I'm not going to be following his act-by-act -act structure quite so closely, but 
I will be back every day this week with a new installment of The Stand Review until Books and Nachos Review is complete. So join me tomorrow as I start going through the characters of The Stand, including Stu Redmond, Francis Goldsmith, Larry Underwood, and Nick Andros. Thank you for listening to this installment, and until next time, please remember to support your local bookstore. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Bumpty bump. And I say unto ye, brother, once in every generation, the plague will fall among them. End quote. The plague, once in every generation, the plague will fall among them. Once in every generation, the plague will fall among them. Bumpty bump. Believe that happy crappy? My life for you.